Hi, this is Mo. And this is Sarah, and you're listening to the podcast Bird Shit. We started this podcast to share our love of birding with other enthusiastic birders in the world. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another week's episode of Bird Shit Podcast. We are super excited because this was a very fun interview. Mo, who did we interview? We spoke with Karina Newsom, and guys, this interview has been like three months in the making. Yeah. We tried to talk to her back in October and then, I don't know, things happened and then the holidays happened and now everybody is back like settling into the humdrum life that is 2020. And luckily, Karina still wanted to be on Bird Chip Podcast, which we were very excited about. We first found her on Twitter. She has this amazing video that she did last migration season called Do Anything for the Count. It's an incredible parody video. And (laughs) as soon as I saw it, I told Sarah, I was like, this girl needs to be on our podcast. And (laughs) thank goodness she wanted to be on our podcast. Karina Newsom is a graduate student studying biology with a focus on avian conservation. She has worked in the field of wildlife conservation for eight years, first as a zookeeper specializing in animal training and conservation education, and currently as a field biologist working to conserve the McGillivary seaside sparrow. Having experienced the hurdles faced by people of color interested in wildlife careers, Karina has founded several programs to encourage high school students from underrepresented demographics to consider careers in wildlife sciences. Karina grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and has always had a desire to participate in and advocate for the protection of wildlife and natural spaces and encourage people of color in the U.S. to explore the great outdoors. A couple other fun facts she shared with us. Blue jays were actually her gateway species into birding. She first got into birding when she was in college, taking an ornithology class. And it wasn't really until she took this class that she realized how many incredible details she was missing about the world around her. Since then, she has used birding as a vehicle to connect people of color from the urban neighborhoods to the natural world in the same way that it has forged a connection for her. The spot of her favorite bird will always belong to her blue jay, but her current unicorn bird, aka the bird she is currently trying to find, is the American avocet. Which I saw. I saw one of those. When? Uh, they were, they were kind of lost because of the hurricane that flew by Maine this last fall. I didn't know what I was looking at though. They're so cute. They've got that little, like the little upturned bill, kind of like a little snooty looking bird. Yeah. That's awesome. Hey, welcome to Virtual Podcast. Thank you. It's such a, an honor to be here and I'm really excited. We're glad you think it's an honor. (laughs) (laughs) We're not always It is. (laughs) Have you heard about the podcast or did you listen to it at all? Or I heard about it because of the name, right? So I was like, bird shit. I was like, oh, that sounds edgy. And then I've, I've listened to some of, the, <laughs> yeah, some of the episodes. The name is very catchy. So that was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was all Sarah. So you've been a zookeeper, a wildlife conservation educator, a birder, a hip hop mogul birder, a field <laughs> biologist, which is all super impressive. But tell us what led you to these career paths and to where you are today. Yeah, well, I've always been fascinated with wildlife. But growing up like in the city in Philadelphia, I really wasn't exposed to what such career paths might entail for people who like wildlife. And I was into, you know, like National Geographic kind of wildlife. But because of my lack of exposure, all I could think of was veterinarian for a career, which is the case for a lot of people. So I kind of was going down that path through middle school, high school. That was kind of what I was pursuing. And then my senior year of high school, in like the second semester, I 
passed out during surgery at the veterinary clinic and I was like having this breakdown. And then a family friend reached out who was like, hey, my sister's a zookeeper at the Philadelphia Zoo. Do you want to go see what she does? And so I went and that changed everything. And she was a black woman. She showed me behind the scenes. She was a lead carnivore keeper. She showed me everything she did, the paperwork, the animal training, the diet, the husbandry, everything, the education. After that, I pursued wildlife conservation. And so that was kind of the, the springboard. Um, and then once I was in college, that's kind of when birds became my focus. But the zoo was where it all started. That's fantastic. And it's so cool that you mentioned that your mentor in that was also a Black woman, because as you just sort of alluded to, you have faced a lot of barriers in getting to where you are. And we're super impressed with your tenacity and your drive and just your absolute dedication to how much these things mean to you. That is a role model to birders everywhere, really. (laughs) (laughs) You know, not to put it lightly, like that's like a huge accomplishment. (laughs) How do you think your background has influenced this, whether in positive or negative ways, whether it's birding or in your career? How has your background kind of played into where you are? So I think uh, both growing up in the city, so not being surrounded by much wildlife at all, as well as having, but having still kind of like an interest in wildlife. I knew that I wanted to get every opportunity that I could to expose myself to wildlife. I just didn't know how. Um, And because I was kind of isolated from the wildlife, you know, native to North America, by the time I got to college and was taking field classes, like, you know, herpetology, the study of reptiles and amphibians, and then mammalogy, and then ornithology, everything was so new to me. But I I was kind of educated about the mammals of North America, right? There aren't that many reptiles kind of knew about them, but birds for some reason had completely evaded me. I knew nothing about North American birds. And so once I got to ornithology, I was just overcome by awe with every single new bird that I was learning and then walking outside and realizing these were literally within 20 feet of me this whole time. And I I couldn't believe it. And so because I had all this pent up excitement about seeing wildlife from, you know, having the interest, but not having the exposure, by the time I learned about birds, I was just, I was all in. Even though I, you know, didn't have a lot of experiences as a child, I have certainly made, certainly made up for it as an adult. And I think that because I know what even single exposures to, whether it's a career path like zookeeping or to certain kinds of animals when you're walking outside, because I know how powerful one exposure can be and being introduced to that can be, I try to recreate that for as many people as I can who came from backgrounds like mine. That's so great that you mentioned that about just the world of birds and like they're all around us, but you don't really notice them. I was just talking to my coworkers today and they're like, Mo, do you dislike any birds? And I was like, no. (laughs) They were like, well, what about crows? And I was like, guys, crows are so smart. Like, how do you not like a crow? And they're like, well, what about the gulls? And I was like, if a gull was the only bird that I saw on a given day, then I like the gull. Like. You got to take what you can get when you're into birding. (laughs) Absolutely. Going off that a little bit, we saw that you were recently featured in Diversity in Action magazine, which was very cool. For listeners who aren't familiar, this is a digital and print publication that's dedicated to supporting and promoting diversity in science, technology, engineering, the arts, and math. That's super awesome. Way to go. Congratulations. (laughs) Again, that was an honor as well. What does this feature mean to you and how important do you think organizations like this are in promoting STEM and STEAM to people of all different backgrounds? For me, as I said, I was absolutely honored to be featured. Um, This kind of a publication, this kind of an initiative is very important to me because as we've seen in the pattern of, you could go, you can zoom out to American history or to career paths or STEM in particular, if we don't do anything, 
we will have homogenous workforces, usually reflecting the majority, the center of the United States population, which is middle class and up Mm -hmm. white Americans. If we don't do anything, that will be what the result is. So it takes intentionality to make the field of science or technology or any of the STEAM fields to make them look like the populations in the U.S., And so having a magazine that is dedicated specifically to that purpose, um, highlighting um, not only people of color, but women of color or women in general, uh, making sure that demographics that have usually been pushed out for any number of reasons, pushed out or, or hindered from being part of these particular fields are being highlighted because again, you know, the easiest path is to, to gather the people who are easiest to access or who are most abundant. But it, it is definitely going to take us being intentional to reach out to those who are not most abundant and who have been blocked out. So Diversity in Action magazine highlights so many awesome professionals. And I, I was just scrolling through that magazine issue, being just overwhelmed by the people of color, the women who are being featured. I, I was encouraged myself. So not only does it you know, show the rest of the world, hey, look at all of these different kinds of people who are involved in this field. Um, it's encouraging to people who are parts of those communities to see other people like us doing the work or similar work to what we're doing. You had a great article on your website where you wrote about homogeny in any ecosystem and how dangerous that is. This is maybe like a weird comparison, but they talk about how there's like basically one strain of bananas that we're all <laughs> eating now. And if anything happens to that one strain, it's like we're never going to have bananas again and how you really need diversity to have a successful ecosystem in nature. And it's crazy that we don't have diversity as humans, as a population to give ourselves the best chance of thriving in multiple mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. And it's it, what it was funny because one of my friends had just one day casually asked me like, what do you think nature has to tell us about the importance of diversity? And she's a microbiologist. And I think she already knew this, this <laughs> idea, but I was like, mm, you know, I don't know. And then it like hit me like a bag of bricks. I was like, Oh my gosh, like the same way that it matters for genetics, the same way it matters at the population level, the ecosystem level, it matters when you're dealing with groups of people who are solving problems. And so it, to me, that's a really revolutionary way to think about it. And I try to share what she shared with me as often as I can. Yeah, you definitely want to avoid having that group think when you have multiple people who are always the same and then you always come up with the same answers. For sure. It can be dangerous. Speaking of your work, you selected a very specific subspecies for your graduate research. So I might butcher this so you can correct me. The McGillivray's seaside sparrow. So how did you land on this species? Yeah, so the the McGillivray's seaside sparrow is a subspecies of the seaside sparrow, of course. And honestly, I had actually never heard of this species at all before I started graduate school. And what happened was I was applying to graduate schools. And basically the way it works is you find an advisor that studies the kind of questions that you want to answer for, you know, could be any species. And then you, you know, see if they're willing to take you into their lab. Well, at Georgia Southern, Elizabeth Hunter was studying a variety of different kinds of conservation efforts for a variety of species. One of them was the seaside sparrow. And she had funding available for research with this species that I had actually not heard of prior to speaking with her. And so I I took it on and I was super excited about it because it's a totally new species to me. It was a totally new ecosystem. They dwell in the salt marshes of coastal Georgia, North and South Carolina, Florida. And I'd never been to any of the coastal marshes before. Um, So it was all brand new to me. So I, I was excited about it. So I studied that species because that's what was available. And it was also of interest to me. We know very, very, very little about seaside sparrows. 
but we do know that they're facing incredible difficulties these days. Can you give us an overview of this sparrow subspecies and the problems they're facing and what your research is looking at? Yeah, so because this species lives on the coast of uh, the states that I mentioned, but for this uh, conversation, Georgia, coastal ecosystems and communities of people are really kind of the at the forefront of issues relating to climate change, specifically when it comes to like sea level rise and really large storms and things like that. So sea level rise is one of the leading threats to creatures that live in marshes. Um, and that's because for species that are nesting in the marsh, they are spending really vulnerable life stages in the marsh. So for seaside sparrows, when they build their nest, they build it at a particular height off the ground in the marsh grass. Their environment is tidal, so twice a day the water rises and then it falls back down. So they are adapted to nest in an area where the water level goes up and down every single day. But if a high tide is higher than they basically are prepared for and the water enters the nest and it floods the nest, the offspring will basically drown and they'll, they'll lose that clutch. Oh. But that happens even before like, climate change really started ramping up. Nest flooding is something that they kind of have to deal with. And their behavioral response that they've adapted is to re-nest right away and they'll re-nest higher the next time. So if they lose a nest to flooding, they'll nest again and they'll nest higher so that they don't get flooded again. But the problem with that is that when they nest higher, they are more exposed to predators. And so the reason why sea level rise is a particular problem for the species is because if the height of high tide continues to get higher and higher as the sea level rises, they are going to have to nest higher. That's their behavioral ad adaptive response. But when they do that, they've got predators waiting right there for them. So they're kind of trapped between a rock and a hard place. And so my research comes in at the predator level. When it comes to like what wildlife managers can do about this problem, it's pretty hard for like, you know, the Georgia Department of Natural Resources to stop sea level rise for the coast. But, <laughs> but what they could do is to address the amount of predation that these animals are exposed to. And lots of wildlife managers have done predation control for all kinds of threatened species. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to assess how predators are distributed across the marsh, across the breeding habitat of seaside sparrows. And so I'm, I'm particularly looking at like closeness to roadways and closeness to water bodies, seeing if there is a predictable pattern. And if there is, wildlife managers can then take that information and apply any sort of potential predation reduction measures to the areas that are going to have the most predators. Um, but on top of that, I'm also looking to see if where there are mo more predators, are there higher instances of nest predation? And to do that, I've got video cameras on top of several seaside sparrow nests all the time throughout the breeding season, um, monitoring which nests are depredated and what species are the ones responsible for depredating the nests. It's a long answer, but <laughs> that's what's going on. No, it's a complex problem. <laughs> Can we ask what you're seeing so far as the number one predator for this species? Or is that going to come out later in your research? No, that's fine. So, so far, the most common predator has been the American mink. But I suspect that raccoons are doing more damage than I've been able to see so far. I have one more field season coming up and I'm going to be collecting twice as much data because I've seen like raccoon prints in the marsh. And I've seen raccoons on camera traps that I have placed around the marsh, not on nests, but just throughout the marsh. And so I think they might be doing more than I have seen so far on the videos, but we'll see what emerges throughout this next field season. When does the field season start? It starts at the, basically the end of April and continues until the end of July. Cool, cool. Well, Sarah and I, we're pretty domesticated birders. <laughs> what's, what's life like out in the field? Like, can you share some of your favorite or least favorite memories of doing that? 
Yeah, so as I said, I was super excited to start exploring the coastal marshes because I'd never been to one prior to going to grad school. And it is honestly a surreal experience. Like there are just such a diversity of every kind of creature, like even the invertebrates like crabs. Like I could look at fiddler crabs, which are just in the millions out there. I could just watch them all day and not even look at the seaside sparrow. Like if, if I wasn't focused, <laughs> um, then you have a variety of birds. So seaside sparrows, marsh wrens, roseate spoonbills, all kinds of, you know, wood storks, uh, eager. It's like, it's just booming with biodiversity. And so my favorite experience, I think, from being in the field was when I actually found my first seaside sparrow nest. And it's really hard to find them because you're looking through marsh grass and they're, they're made of marsh grass. So it's like looking for hay in a haystack. It's just like, this is, <laughs> <laughs> it can drive me crazy if I'm not careful. But what I'm really relying on is like behavioral cues from the parents. So that's kind of what lets me know where the nests are. But the first couple of times I went out with my advisor and she showed me how she finds nests. The first time I went out by myself, I was like, I'm never going to find a nest. This is impossible. And then I found my first nest. There were three baby seaside sparrows that had hatched already in a nest. Like the eyes were still shut. They still had the, you know, feeding response where if they feel a vibration, they open their mouths and, and beg. And I was just like, wow, like these extremely, like the most vulnerable state of being that these animals are yeah. in is in this very extreme environment. Like it is so hot out there. I mean, like over a hundred degrees, you're surrounded by salt, right? So even the, the plant stems and leaves have salt all over them. They don't ever drink fresh water. Like they are actually adapted to drink salt water, but that's, a, and that's a whole other thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's so intense that like, how can anything that fragile survive? And I just, I broke down and cried right out there. Yeah. Salty tears in the salty marsh, right? <laughs> <laughs> the converse of that is that it is a very intense environment to be in and it is not friendly to <laughs> bipedal animals like humans. And so when I'm out there and I'm in the mud, like I'm constantly like sinking up to my waist. And so anytime that I have to belly crawl out of the mud, it is my least favorite time. <laughs> so <laughs> so but that is pretty much the, the thing I, the only thing I don't like about the marsh. That seems like a fair thing to not like about yeah. <laughs> I was just gonna say, like, that's one thing to do that on, like, a normal basis, but anything over, like, 90 degrees, I can't even imagine. Yeah. We went bushwhacking in, like, Montreal, which you wouldn't expect, but I wore shorts. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cattail scratches forever. Oh, no. I was like, I am not cut out for this. <laughs> oh, sure you are. I just need some good pants, that's all. I know. I was like, I was like, why did I wear shorts? But it was because like it was a hundred degrees. It was so hot. Nope. Always pants. Yeah. Domesticated birders right there. <laughs> and that's okay. Well, after all the things we've just heard about the seaside sparrows, what are some things that maybe our listeners could do to try and help make life better for them? Whether it's a daily habit that they could adopt or good conservation organizations where we can send donations. So when it comes to everyday life, one of the things that I've realized just being out in my field sites is that water quality is very important. And recently there was a huge oil spill right outside of my field sites. Um, a, a cargo boat turned over on the Georgia coast and spilled all this oil into the marshes. Ugh. And at that point, I, was, I became very aware of the importance of clean water for every species out there. But I was especially, of course, thinking about the seaside sparrow and how it would affect my research, of course. But I got to thinking and talking to other marine biologists at my university, if you dump a chemical, if you dump anything into the water, even a couple hundred miles away from the coast, it will end up in the ocean within a couple of days. Mm. Water moves quickly and it moves far. Um, so my encouragement is to tell people to take care of the water in their watershed, the water where you are, because not only is that the water that you're using and the creatures that share the ecosystem you're living in, not only is that the water that they are using, 
but that water will travel far away from where you are and have impacts that you will never see, but that are important. And especially when they add up to the contribution of millions of people. So I always encourage people to be very careful about what they're putting, what they're dumping into freshwater sources, dumping, you know, into the toilet or into a a drain. Always be very conscious of that. Now, when it comes to bird conservation, and if, if you're looking for a place to donate, I always always recommend the Audubon Society. Here in Georgia, the Atlanta Audubon is a really wonderful chapter of the Audubon Society. And I work with them often on with education and outreach and even just for collaborating for projects. I'm doing a brown-headed nuthatch project on the side and they've given us yes, all that. Lo- yeah, like lots of brown-headed nuthatch nest boxes and they've just been so wonderful. So if you're looking for a, an organization to donate to who's doing lots of great bird conservation, Audubon Society is always a great call. All right, good advice. Can I just go on my soapbox really quick? It drives me crazy that Dawn soap advertises itself as basically the best soap for cleaning up oil spills. And we just like accept it as a society. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, Dawn soap for is great for cleaning birds after they get covered in oil. And it drives me crazy mm-hmm. yeah. that that's like their number one advertisement. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah. why is this okay? Yeah, it's sad, right? <laughs> so sad. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. Off my soapbox, sorry. That was like literally a soapbox, too. That was hard. Or soap. Yeah, that was good. That was good. Okay, so we're going to pivot a little bit. Um, We've talked about diversity a little, and we know you're very passionate about bringing more women and people of color into the sciences and exploring the great outdoors. What barriers do you see for people of color who want to get involved with nature or the sciences? So there are lots of different kinds of barriers that, that have issues rooted in different, different things. But I think one of the most immediate barriers is that if you are poor, right, which is the case for many people of color, but even Caucasian people like, you know, can have socioeconomic barriers to all kinds of potential career paths. But when it specifically comes to careers that are like outdoor oriented, to get a job, you have to have experience. To get experience, you have to work for free, and that's the problem. So even in zookeeping and in zoo conservation, I had to work for three or four years interning for free. Thankfully, the zoo that I worked at was down the street from my home, and my mom let me you know, work for free, even though she couldn't really even support me necessarily to work for free. I did. She let me do it. Most people, if you are impoverished, you can't do that. And so that automatically cuts you out from the rest of the career path very early on. And so the barrier to not paying your interns is a major one. Secondly, in a more social realm, the outdoors, specifically for African-American people, has really negative racist connotations. Like members of our current families who are currently alive have had horrible experiences in the outdoors when it comes to safety. If you're out in the sticks, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. exploring the outdoors is not a safe activity. And even now, like I'm always on edge when I bring students, like a group of African-American students outside in a rural area it's mostly white because I don't know what they're going to encounter, what people are going to think, what they will think is happening. And so I always feel like I have to have a white person around to vouch for what we're doing or to make, you know, so that people don't, aren't suspicious or, 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 or treat us differently. And so that's not something that's necessarily, you know, addressed. That's not an easily addressable issue, but that's a barrier. It's like, that's not a safe place. Even black parents, like that's, that's a white thing. Like, be careful out there. Don't go out there. And so that's something that myself and lots of my colleagues have had to deal with. And then, Kind of lastly, there's a long list, but lastly for for this purpose is that 
if you're someone who grew up in the city specifically, so if you are a city dweller, and again, you could be of many different demographics in the city, but I'll speak from the African-American perspective. If you are not used to being in the outdoors and you're not used to having wildlife around, it's very easy for wildlife to just kind of blanketly be thought of as like vermin, as like plague, you know, like you want to keep the wildlife out, wildlife needs to be exterminated. And so that's kind of how like most of my family and friends back home think. Like they think I'm out here playing with, you know, rats and and other like <laughs> roaches like that, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, that's yeah. What people think of when they think of the outdoors. I had a lot of ingrained fears from that worldview that I had to unlearn and I'm still unlearning. And being out down here in Southern Georgia, these bugs they have, they got cockroaches that are like three inches long and they fly, right? So Jeez. I'm always on edge, but I, I've chosen this life. So here we are. Um, so those are kind of the barriers that I've noticed to people of color or city dwellers when it comes to that field. A lot of these seem to be somewhat systemic. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's a little harder to just address by yourself. Mm-hmm. But how can people help remove these barriers and make the outdoors accessible to all people? Yeah. Um, so I think when it comes to, depending on who you are, so if you are someone who like works in the field and you have access to resources or to making decisions about how resources are used, I would implore you to do whatever you can to find opportunities for your organization to pay your interns or to provide funds for people who are pre-career or trying to get into the career because that is, as I said, a huge screen, a huge filter for a huge portion of the population. I think that when it comes to like education opportunities, like I said, for me and for most of the people that I know who are of color who are in this field, they're here because they had one really good exposure. They saw someone usually like themselves, but or they just saw someone, someone introduced them to, to the information, to the realm. And so if you are someone that is doing education or has access to educational opportunities, do the work to extend your reach to urban communities, to communities of color, to, to communities that you see absent from your career field, um, because that is, that is precisely the step that needs to happen to diversify the field of which you are a part. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, ironically, despite growing up in Northern Michigan, like nobody around, just a bunch of birds and trees, I didn't get into birding until I lived in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it was only because I had the luxury of joining a bird walk on Wednesday mornings before going into the office. Like mm-hmm. I could I could afford the time to wake up at 6.30, to make it there by 7.30, to walk around for an hour and learn from somebody. Mm-hmm. But even at that, I was like the only 20-something with a bunch of 60 year olds yeah, yeah. <laughs> who are just retired. And I'm like, this sucks because like, it would be so cool. There are so many people in Chicago that could benefit from this service, mm-hmm. but you're doing it in like a super privileged neighborhood, which of course has like the best park in the city. So it's just like all these things, you wish you could find a way to help them expand their reach in their program yes. and also make those spaces available as well. Yeah. And it's interesting with birding in particular, it comes off even to me as like a kind of wealthy person activity. And sometimes I feel even really weird when I'm at like Audubon meetings or I'm at these large birding social gatherings. And it's like, you see all these older white people with money who are retired, who have, you know, time on their hands and can afford like all this expensive equipment. So you see people with these nice binoculars and these really large cameras. And they're talking about how they're getting on a plane to fly across the country to see a bird. And it's like, I don't have that luxury, right? And it's mm-hmm. like, I feel uncomfortable in this space. And it's not that, you know, listen, it's definitely not to say that they shouldn't be doing it. Like, I implore people, spend all the money you can looking at birds because that helps conservation. <laughs> like, yeah, that, it's crucial. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that if that's all you see, if that is the only thing you see when you look at birding, 
you're not going to want to do that. And so mm -hmm. it, it is going to take intentionality on the, the part of those people who have the privilege of money, time, whatever it might be, to reach out to communities not like each other so that people don't feel barred off from the leisure of going out and looking at the birds where they live, you know? So it seems like something that should be so accessible, but at the same time, it really can, can easily not be. Yeah, definitely. In thinking more about the youth and getting younger generations involved, we first learned about you from your awesome Twitter video that you released, <laughs> Do Anything for the Count. If you guys haven't seen that, you need to watch it. It's so good. I actually just made my husband watch it again like two nights ago. I was like, hey, remember this awesome video I showed oh, you like shoot. a year ago? <laughs> uh, oh, no. So good. And Twitter is obviously a fantastic platform for all those conversations too. But in what other ways have you found are really effective to engage younger generations in science or birding or, you know, the work that you're doing and kind of getting them excited about what to do in science? You know, I, I had thought about this question before we got on this call, but when I, now that I, like, I'm actually thinking about that video. So the video itself was a joke. Like me and my friend just one day were like <laughs> rapping Cardi B because I'm a huge Cardi B fan. And so like, I know every verse that she's ever rapped. And I yeah. was, we were like texting each other back and forth, like bird alternatives to, to some of the lines. <laughs> and it just developed in 48 hours. And in 48 hours, we had a whole video, right? So it, that was a joke. It's a masterpiece. It is not a joke. It is a masterpiece. So good. <laughs> Let's clarify that, for a second. That's, that's very generous of you. That's very generous. Um, but I, I realized that the education that I've had, you know, I've been the only black person in every single one of those spaces for most of the time. He, he, Antarius, my friend, was the only time I ever had a black person in my, in my, in my department before. So we had a great time. But I was like, my inclination was to like, oh, I'm supposed to, okay, I'm supposed to wear khaki. I'm supposed to wear my, you know, wear these outdoorsy looking clothes. I'm supposed to, and I'm like, no, I'm going to wear hoops. I'm going to wear mm -hmm. my high top sneakers, my jeans, like whatever. Like when I bring this excitement that I have to my own community and I'm, you know, I'm looking like the sticks, that's another barrier. I'm going to dress how I always yeah. dress, how I've always yeah. dressed. And I'm going to, mm -hmm. to be the same. And I'm not going to try to seem like I'm this new enlightened professional come with me. No, I'm, I am, I am you, you are me. As a result of seeing the effectiveness of being who I am and not, you know, trying to put on some sort of extra, I don't want to say professional, but like looking like what a birder should look like. I've started some programs like more formally again to kind of provide opportunities, like even single experience opportunities for students the way that I've had it like when I was younger in high school. But when I do that, I do that as a city girl. And so every time I take kids out during these programs, whether they're high school students or young college students or middle school students, like I'm me and I, and I speak slang, you know what I mean? I talk how I talk when I'm home, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I'm getting that information <laughs> across. But I've thankfully been able to, as far as like getting the younger generation involved, I've had a lot of support from like my university that I went to for undergrad, the zoo that I worked at most recently before I went to grad school, they've both given me resources and said, hey, if you have a vision for diversifying this field, taken and run with it. And they've let me start programs to expose kids to different career options. And so that's kind of been the most effective way that I think I've been able to contribute to that. And now that I've, I'm in grad school, I've been able to pass those programs on to other leadership so that I can focus on my research and stuff. But um, that's kind of what I've been doing to engage young people. So can I ask more about these programs? Like generally, what do you do with your students, whether they're like high school or college age to kind of get them engaged? Yeah. So at the zoo, the program was called Pathway to Animal Care Careers at National Zoo. And that program reached out to Title I high school students in uh, Nashville, which means that 70% or more are on free or reduced lunch. They applied and then they would come to the zoo and they would spend the whole day with me participating in animal care 
animal training, animal nutrition, all aspects of zookeeping. And then I would take them around the zoo to see the different kinds of jobs that are there outside of the ones that I have. And they would get behind the scenes tour of like the veterinary clinic, the commissary, which is the food and like the big kitchen at a zoo. And like all the grubs and stuff. Yeah, the grub. I would make it look. <laughs> and if they were, if, I would kind of feel them out. If they were not too squeamish, I would have them, you know, cutting up the meat for the carnivores and the birds of prey and, you know, everything Dude. like gutting mice. That's cool. Like, yeah. So, I mean, I would read the room. You know what I mean? If they, if they were like yeah. not with it, <laughs> I wouldn't push the matter. But giving them as much experience as they were willing to, you know, jump into. And it was just a single day and I would kind of measure success. I would do a, you know, a pre post survey and see what, what learning outcomes were accomplished. And then at my previous university, I started a program called Wildlife Careers Program, which was geared towards high school students as well. They basically had a partnership with my university, which has an animal care facility. I would run a camp during the summertime where they would go to the zoo, to wildlife rehabilitators, to wildlife educators, and kind of see what variety of careers existed, people who did environmental monitoring. And that was like a week long. Um, but the whole program centered on getting hands-on experiential learning opportunities. And then when I was in college, me and my friend, Jake Belair, who's still my best friend, works at the Nashville Zoo. We started a program where we just got a bunch of all of our college acquaintances and we used the animals that we had on campus to do outreach to our community. So public schools, nursing homes, community groups, whoever would have us for free. Yeah. And we would just go and present the animals that we had. So I've been really fortunate to be around lots of very supportive institutions. Do you have a favorite animal that you've worked with and presented? The Binturong, also known as Bearcat. They are a very, not very well-known group of creatures. They have really long, big tails. They look like bears. Yeah. They're small. Yeah. So they're my favorite just because people had usually never even heard of one or seen one before. And they're just, their behavior is a lot of fun. Dealing with their personalities was very enriching. So they were my favorite. Learning a little bit about the programs that you presented, are there good ways for listeners to get involved in these programs or maybe similar programs? Like good ways to find them in their communities or ways that they can volunteer? What would you suggest? If you're someone who's looking to be involved with those opportunities, like if you are like a high school student or something like that, who, who, who's looking for those kinds of experiential learning opportunities, some zoos have like keeper four day programs or exposure programs. As far as it stands now, those programs are not like openly funded. So they're funded by very specific streams of income. So they can't really be donated to. But if you live, if you live in any of those cities, so Canton, Ohio um, or Nashville, those programs are available to the public. And so if you're interested, I would encourage you to apply and get involved. Oh, that's so cool. We've talked a lot today about environmental access equality. Obviously, really important to you, something that Sarah and I are both huge advocates for. What are some ideas or ways that everyone can become a better advocate for this? Like people have money and they can spend it towards these things. That's great. But are there things that people can do in group walks or even in their own communities to sort of encourage environmental access to all? Yeah. One of the first important elements to diversifying a space, like what you can do as an individual, is you have to make yourself accountable to the community that is absent from where you are. So you can't just have like a Black friend or, you know, a, a woman friend or, a, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. like a single person and think, oh, okay, I, you know, I, I'm connected. You need to kind of connect yourself with those communities. If you find yourself, you know, you look around and you say, well, all I know are people like me and, and none of them are of color. Find a way to be committed to a community of color near you. And then as you know people, as you build relationships with people, and that can be done in a variety of ways, but if you, if you have people in your circle and you are someone who is 
you know, quote unquote outdoorsy, you can invite them as a friend. So it's not like it's some program representative reaching out, you know, as this faceless name, you know, hey, come apply. <laughs> it's just a person saying to another person, hey, I'm going out today. Want to come with me? I think a lot of trust is required for some activities that are outdoor related, especially when you're dealing with inner city inhabitants who are maybe not used mm -hmm. to being in the vulnerable outdoors, which is honestly what it feels like as a person from the city. So I think relying on your interpersonal relationships to encourage people you know who you don't see in your circle or in the outdoor field to join you, I think is one of the best ways that individuals can contribute to that if you are someone who is already outdoorsy. But of course, if you do have funds and you're looking for, you know, how can I financially support efforts like this, there is this organization that's really awesome. It's called the Greening Youth Foundation. Um, and Greening Youth Foundation is geared specifically towards youth of color who are interested in natural science careers. And they essentially pay them to do internships. They usually don't pay their, oh. their employees. So they are providing funding so that student can do, do the internship. They also provide professional development funding so they can travel to conferences and network. And so it's a really awesome opportunity. I did not come up to that program, but I know several people who have. They have told me that it's wonderful and I've been following their work and I know the people who run it. So if you're looking for a place to give, I would definitely recommend the Greening Youth Foundation. That's fantastic. So I'm going to switch things up and ask something a little lighter and more fun. I was reading your memorable birding experience and I want to talk about this because this is hilarious and awesome. <laughs> So do you want to tell us about your most memorable birding experience? Yes. So I took ornithology in college with Dr. Jason Corder. I always got to shout him out because he's the man responsible for the bird situation that I have going on. So he he was so passionate. He would like certain, certain ideas about birds just make him cry as he was talking about it. And one day he introduced us to the pileated woodpecker, which again, everyone else seemed to have heard of. I had never heard of it. He's like, it's a crow-sized woodpecker. I'm like, that can't be right. Crow size? Like I would have seen that, right? <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that like they live in like really kind of, at least in Ohio where I was, and kind of, you know, forests that are densely, uh, densely packed with trees, kind of remote. So I would have never seen one. So I was like, I got to see this bird. So they became kind of like my unicorn bird. So I went, I was listening to a little radio channel. They got radio stations you can listen to for birding observations. Like this bird was spotted in this place. Like it's, a, it's an AM frequency. So I would sometimes listen to that. And then one day I heard on the radio that there was a pileated woodpecker spotted at this nature center, like an hour and some change away from me. And so my boyfriend at the time, I was like, listen, I didn't have a car. I was like, you gotta, we gotta get a car and we have to drive. So his mom, who happened to be a birder, drove us in the middle of a blizzard. Like you should not be on the road. Drove us <laughs> in the middle of a blizzard to this hour and some change away nature center. And so it's coming down. Like you can't see six feet in front of you. And so we're walking out there and the snow is just piling up because it's super fluffy. And all of a sudden, a palliative woodpecker makes like a very like monkey sound, like laughing kind of call. Uh -huh. And I heard it and I was like, this is not happening. And all of a sudden, through the, through the snow, I saw this like bright red cap fly through, land on a tree. And I literally was just overcome and I fell down and just cried. And I was like, this is not happening. Because I was looking for that bird for a year, for 12 months. Oh, and literally God. on Valentine's Day, I found that bird. Oh, you found your true love. Listen, man. So that that was just like to this to this day, like that was the biggest pursuit that I've ever had and the most rewarding find that I've ever had. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And now I'm here in Georgia where they're everywhere, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah. 
But it, that's what's cool too is like when you have a bird that really sticks with you like that, it's almost like every time you see it again, you're like taken back to that moment. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And it's just, I don't know, it just, it's such a cool thing to have that connection with another species. Definitely. For such a huge bird, it's kind of crazy that you hadn't seen one, so to right. speak. It's like hard to imagine a bird mm-hmm. that size until you really see it. Yeah. And people are like, oh, they're in my backyard. Oh, they're at my grandma's house. I'm like, can, well, can I come over to Granny's house then? So maybe <laughs> if I'm at Granny's house. My, uh, my brother spent some time in northern Michigan. On, we have like these two islands in Lake Michigan called the North and South Manitou Islands. And he was doing tick research up there. So he was like setting traps and like, checking tick counts just to see because it's bad there are so many ticks up there and one of their traps one day caught a pileated woodpecker i don't know how but there's this picture of him holding it because they you know they have to like catch the animals and release them mm-hmm. and he looks he's just like holding it out like as far as he can he looks terrified <laughs> <laughs> they're little dinosaurs they really i mean they kept that, that dinosaur look in their eyes it's not easy on the eyes oh gosh it's so true I have held one as a baby wrapped in like blankets because um, I used to volunteer at a bird rescue center no way. and they had one come in and then the woman would feed it and it would stick its little tongue out. And she's like, you can hold it. I had the biggest freak out of my life. I was like, what? I can hold it. Oh my I can God. I'm so it. jealous. It was wrapped up like a little baby. It was the cutest thing <laughs> ever. Oh my gosh. Baby piloted woodpeckers are to die for. Oh, it was so cute. <laughs> Adorable. Okay, well, Sarah and I, we started this podcast because every podcast we listened to seemed like it was like hosted by a guy and like that guy knew a lot about birds and Sarah and I are like, well, we're women and we don't know a lot about birds. (laughs) (laughs) We're the opposite. (laughs) We've tried to make our podcast accessible to people, get them into birds in like a way that maybe they haven't thought about birds before. Mm -hmm. But we have talked on this podcast a few times about how birding is sort of this historically male-dominated specifically white male dominated hobby, Mm -hmm. but we are obviously interested in helping change this predominantly white image that is often associated with birding and conservation. What are some other ways that we can try to help change this image? I honestly think that social media is a very powerful platform. And I, when I discovered Twitter, like I knew it was there. I just never gave it any serious thought. Like I never used a hashtag before. And I was like, I typed in black birder right? Hashtag black birder. And I saw all these black people outside birding. I was like, holy crap. Because I always felt like I was the weirdo. I felt like I was the weirdo. And I like, I kind of had to be secretive and kind of sneak bird. You know what I mean? Especially if I was like, (laughs) around like, other hip city people, like I couldn't be obviously birding or like around the kids on campus. But when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, like for me, someone who already is a birder, that was monumental. So I think that for people of color, and even people who are not of color, people who are women, like make yourself seen. That's actually really important. And I think social media is a really easy way to do that. Like you can do that with just, you know, some hashtags, you know, post some pictures of yourself and not in a vain way. It's just like, so that other people who may be very, you know, tentative about what they're doing in this field, have someone to look at and be like, oh shoot, like this is actually okay to do because I needed validation and I've seen people need validation for this kind of stuff. I would really encourage if you're someone who's into social media at all, like make yourself seen on there, man. It helps and it works. The internet gets a bad rap, I think, for being a scary, terrible place, but there are definitely some beautiful moments of truly connecting with people around the world that you didn't realize are out there that make you feel less alone. Yeah. And the other thing that I realized, like, particularly for educators, like, if you are in a position to share something with an audience, especially kids, 
when you're, you know, oftentimes I see like, you know, featured scientists or, you know, they have pictures of scientists, like just images. And those are very powerful. And it's easy to default to white man, to old white man, because that's kind of what we think of. But like literally just like look up a woman and put it on your, mm -hmm. on your slideshow. Look up a person of color, put it on your slideshow. And that image actually makes a huge difference for the child who you're feeding information to. So if you are in that position, that educated position, I would really encourage you to intentionally look for non-white male science figures, exploration figures, you know, natural science figures, whatever, to share with your child audiences, because that's, that's a very formative age. That's kind of where they're figuring out where they fit in, what is for them, what is not for them, what they're supposed to be doing as a person like them. So I would encourage people who are educators to maximize their platform. I was really impressed when I saw Audubon Society come out with the Instagram effect, like, what bird are you? Have you, do, oh, have you done yes, that yet? Yes. <laughs> I'm a blue jay. I was like, Audubon Society, like you picked up on this viral thing like really quick. That was very impressive. I like that. That's a really good idea. Just being able to to show those things at a younger age and get people involved at a younger age is really crucial. Yes. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about or discuss at all that we didn't cover? I think that what I would say, and I don't know the demographic of interest regarding people who are listening, but I would always encourage you, it's easy to miss so many things happening outside. But when we pay attention, it has just like exponentially wonderful effects on our lives. So I would encourage anyone listening to when you're outside, whether or not you're a birder, look at a bird or look at anything living and watch it for 30 seconds. And the kinds of questions you start to ask about that creature are just healthy ways to engage your mind, to, to pay attention and watch how something lives and moves through its world is therapeutic and it also connects you with the world around you, which is important, not just for your own you know, personal health, but for the way that you care about your interaction with the world around you um, and the impact that you have. So just taking a second or 30 seconds to look closely at something alive will go far and wide as far as its benefits. But I would encourage you to look at a bird. <laughs> Bugs are fun too. I am currently reading the book, The Life of Birds. Ooh. It's basically like this dissection of how birds see the world or what it would like be like to be a bird. Mm. I'm learning about eyeballs right now. Oh. And my husband is going to kill me because literally every two sentences, I'm like, did you know? Did you know? <laughs> I'm getting texts from Sarah at like midnight. It's just like, did you know the Kiwi like can't actually see anything? And I'm like, girl, I am asleep. Like, <laughs> Fascinating. But it's probably, you probably had to text me because Jake got sick of listening to it. Yeah. Jake, Jake was like, no, I'm done. I was like, did you know that they have two phobias? And he's like, I, I, you can't talk about eyeballs like after five o'clock. <laughs> no eyeballs after five. That is, that is something. <laughs> no, like, I think though, it's like super, like, like you said though, asking questions about other species, like, cause even I learned like that little pink dot in our eye. I don't know if this makes me an idiot, but like where, where our tear duct is, like that's our like remnants of our old nictiting membrane. Mm, like, you know how mm -hmm. my cats have it that go over their eye. I'm like, that's insane. Yeah. Cause like you learn so much about your like own species yeah. when you examine other ones. And it's just always ask questions. It's so much fun. Definitely agree. I nerded out there because I was like, I can talk about this with them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's after five and it's a safe place to it's talk about after eyeballs. Five. I had a moment today where I was like, I came downstairs and I saw a spider on my wall and I was like, I'm just going to let you be there. I'm oh, like, yes. eh, today's oh, yes. a day. <laughs> I'm the only one that knows you're here right now. So we're going to let you live. <laughs> oh yes. The spiders stay always. Yep. Spiders stay. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much, Karina. This was fantastic. We had an awesome time talking with you. We are going to put all the organizations that you talked about. They, I, I was like Googling them while you were talking about them. They all look so, so cool. We'll make sure to put those in the podcast notes so people can reach out to those. Awesome. And we'll make sure to post your website as well so people can learn more about you and see what you're up to. Thank Definitely you. Definitely follow you on Twitter because that's like such a highlight of my day. <laughs> Thanks. Seriously, like Twitter birding universe is just... Oh, it's a gem. It's so yeah, good. it's pure. It's, it's pure. pure. It is so pure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you both. Dude, that was so much fun. Oh my gosh. That was amazing. Karina brought so much knowledge and such a great perspective and a different perspective from one we have. And it was a lot of fun to talk to her. I feel like I've always had this desire to want to help people, but I've not known how to reach certain demographics. And the resources that she shared, I was Googling them like as she was talking about them, and they just seem like they're doing incredible things. So I'm really excited to see if there's something here in Maine that I can get involved with. I know we have a lot of refugees in Maine that are coming in from different countries, and so maybe there's a way I can work with them to get involved. But Karina, I think in everything that she does, is so inspiring and so inclusive that it's really a model for what birding should be as we move forward. Dude, I cannot sum it up better. That was perfect. I feel very invigorated and very jazzed. As I told you, I signed up for an owl walk this Friday night. Yeah, you signed up for an owl walk. Yeah, I'm super excited just to get back out in nature. It's there for you. It's waiting. Yeah, so everyone, we really hope you enjoyed this interview as much as we did. Feel free to reach out to us at our email at hellobirdshit at gmail.com. Hit us up on Instagram at birdshitpodcast or our Twitter at birdshitpod. Yeah, and we'll make sure to post all of Karina's various social media links in the podcast notes as well. So make sure you're following her. And we'll also post some of the organizations that we've mentioned on this episode. If you want to get involved or want to make any kind of donations or find other areas like that in your community to try to help make nature available to people of all different backgrounds. Until then, keep your eyes to the skies. <laughs>